Well, good evening, class. I can't help but there. Well, we are. We started uh, last week, which was the first week of the month. So for the month of October, we're kind of doing a mini-series just to change things up a little bit. Doing just a little bit of, um, uh, let's see, a refresher course in uh, church history. Maybe trying to bring out some things maybe we haven't known before. And then again, maybe we have. Uh, but I notice if I don't stay with it, a lot of church history just kind of blows past my mind. I was talking to Zach earlier about that. He's been reading a book by Stephen Lawson. Uh, and it's a classic on, on history. It's only been out uh, a couple years or so. You know that? Yeah, Janice, have you read that? Oh, yeah. Uh, excellent work. I think you'd highly recommend that book. It's probably one of the best works that's come out on church history as, as of late. Um, that is Stephen Lawson. Very, very, very good uh, man of God, preacher. He's written a few books lately. Uh, Pillars of Grace, yeah. I'm sorry. Pillars of Grace. So... Thank you for bearing with me on that as we as we go through some things like that. So it's a little bit different than our ordinary uh, straight Bible study that we always do. But uh, hopefully it can be helpful to us in uh, just realizing how God works through mankind and whether uh, it be good times, bad times, indifferent, whatever. We see that uh, God is always working and uh, He has His people that uh, He chooses to... Uh, bring forth His Word. And every time it starts getting stagnant um, and uh, finally it seems like the Word of God is dismissed totally, then something else happens somewhere else or He brings it back to that uh, particular place. So it's uh, interesting how God works. You know, just In everyday life, I'm sure you probably look at that and say, well, this is interesting how God's working here. I don't know how this is going to work, but I know He's doing something. And, uh, of course, I, I think of Barb there, how that whole ordeal with her, her. She's going to have surgery. No, she's not going to have surgery. Now she's going to have surgery, but she has to wait. Yeah. And it's like, we keep waiting, and, but at the same time, God's doing something. You know, He's doing something. I saw a picture the other day that somebody had, and they had these sheep that were going around a mountainside. And then the, it's just like the little uh, path that they were on, it just stopped. And all that they had was something like a long drop-off from the mountainside. And then there wasn't any path through there. And it was like saying, that's what it's like waiting in, in the Christian life sometimes. Just wait. Because God's going to do something. Sometimes, you know, it seems like He closes doors, opens doors, does different things. But it's exciting. You know, life is really, really exciting. And so we can look back in history and say, oh, that's what He did there. See? See how he did that? <laughs> but we don't see that in our own lives as it goes along exactly. But uh, anyway, that's what I see interesting. Anyway, why don't we uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for the time and uh, the people that have gathered together to uh, learn more of who you are. And that is the real reason that we exist. That's the real reason why we're here and uh, we, uh, we want to know You so that we can glorify You more in every part of our lives. And uh, we just thank You that uh, You're the one who brings growth. And uh, 
thank you that uh, you are a God in control of history, the Lord of history. In your Son's name we pray, Amen. Uh, just to go back a little bit from where we were at at the end last week, and I felt like I cheated uh, Augustine, which is one of the biggest figures of all of church history as far as um, doctrine is concerned and what he meant to the church. And he had a lot to do with how the Reformation went and where the theology um, derived. Um, most of it came from him. And so he was, he was a reformer when uh, things really weren't reforming, but he was able to put theology into a place where it had never been before and, and bringing things into a systematic way. So whatever doctrines uh, there, are, uh, there are in the Bible, he pretty well covered uh, in his writing. And of course, uh, the one that I can think of the most is the doctrine of grace. Uh, doctrines of grace, I guess we could say. Sin and grace. And at the time of uh, Augustine, you might wonder, well, when did he live? That was uh, His dates were 354 to 430. Uh, so that'll put you in the fourth and the fifth century. Hey guys, how we do? We just started. Um, Western Christianity owes a lot to uh, to the Lord and how He used this particular man. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him because he's one that probably most of us are familiar with. But he did hear Ambrose, who was. Uh, a great man uh, used by God and uh, the oratorical skills that he had probably attracted Augustine. Augustine being the intellectual that he was was sent on the right course from there. So you can see how God used an individual to boost another one's growth and uh, to mean a lot to all of us. Uh, one of the biggest doctrines that he uncovered I guess you could say uncovered. At that time, they didn't really call it total depravity. Uh, the church did have an understanding of the depravity of man, but not exactly like the way that, uh, that he taught. And he said that man is alienated from God and the totality of his being. Uh, he's not, you know, we're not as bad as we can be, but it affected every area of us. And, and we know that. And of course, if you think of Ephesians, just to use a few Scripture here, Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Our nature. And that is straightforward to us. We almost take that one for granted, don't we? We say, well, yeah, that's our nature. It's, um, it's just depraved. It's depraved in every area. Well, the church probably believed that, but it hadn't really formulated it. It was just kind of a part of their doctrine. He had to define it because against him was a guy by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius says there's no such thing as original sin. That means you weren't born in sin and you were born neutral and you have uh, really your own free will. With your own free will, you can choose God without even His grace. And that has gone way beyond any kind of church teaching. 
that the church had ever known. And of course, he was kicked out of the church, and for good reason to be, as he brought forth that heresy. It was that's challenging scripture to say that um, man is basically good and he can choose God on his own and doesn't need His grace. So you can see why Augustine then had to bring forth these truths as he wrote those kind of things. He said man must be a new creation. And you can think of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, we are new creations. All things have become new. Everything else, all things have passed away, right? And, and so he said, we have to be born again. I think Jesus said that, didn't he? We have to be born from above. Uh, we take these face value. We believe those. But he wanted to bring forth that because there were a lot of people starting to follow the way of Pelagius. Um, so he was challenged by that. God um, says he has to come to us by his grace. He just doesn't come to aid us. He comes to totally save us. So um, then there was the Senate of Orange and... Um, it kind of opened the way to a works salvation uh, along the same time um, because it said divine grace may be rejected. And that sounds kind of right at first. We can reject God's grace, but until we are born again or till we have that faith, till God grants us that, we're not going to ever decide that Christ is the answer for us, right? And so the Synod of Orange, even though it wasn't trying to go totally against Augustine, it did grab a little bit of a semi-Pelagius view. Pelagius, we know, no original sin, and you don't even need God's grace. Well, this said, well, yeah, the grace is there, but you can reject it. Well, in the doctrines of grace, we see that Grace is something that will not be rejected. It is something that that God is giving us. So that's called irresistible grace, right? If you go down the the, the doctrines of grace, and uh, so that was that was a big part that um, they were dealing with. Um, the Catholic Church. Then you have Gregory the Great coming along at that same time. The Catholic Church was the Ark of Salvation. It claimed. And it alone, and this is just after, shortly after the time of Augustine, this is where things start to develop in Roman Catholicism. And you can see it, it's just a little bit at a time, just a little bit of chunk here and a chunk there that disagrees with Scripture. And so, not only is it the Ark of Salvation, but it alone is the way that people may be saved. It's through the church that you're saved. Now that that doctrine's coming up along in the, what the fifth century or so. Uh, baptism would bring forgiveness of sins, not just symbolic of showing what has happened, but it forgives sins, completely forgives sins, and that goes against Augustinianism. Um, anyway, the the Lord's Supper, um, as far as when you would take communion, that could knock off a few years every time you do that of what you owe to God. And so therefore, the time that you're going to spend in purgatory, 
some of those years are going to be knocked away every time you have communion. And so that's how important that was. And even for the dead. I always drew a picture of God as a person with a gable chalkboard with a column that's good and a column that's bad and works. Yeah. How many others thought that? <laughs> and that's a natural way. That's a natural thinking and that's a works-based religion. But, huh? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, and of course, they would bring in their money and you'd, bring, you'd, you'd pay for that and that would buy um, some of the time out uh, of purgatory as they're there. So the people that are in purgatory that are dead are, are also waiting for their relatives to uh, have it. To buy a mask, yeah. Right. Yeah, I always wondered how far out my parents were. You know, were they still in up to their waist, or you know, or they just stand up to their ankles? How many masses did we have to take? How much is it? You yeah, never know. Up. And and then when you know when it hit me when I was doing work, Bible study, it was boom. Like, like, wow. How much is enough? And you went away where they were. Any cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses? Uh, they have their 144,000 and some people say, well, I'm in that. But most people can, will tell you and they'll be honest, they'll say, I don't know, I just have to keep working at it. I can't ever tell you if, if, if it's going to be enough. And I think that is a literal... The 144,000. Yeah, and they, t- they take that that's, that's the ones that's in uh, their kingdom and then other people will get in but it'll be in a lesser type situation. But uh, some people think that they're they're in that, but that that covers all of church history, I guess. And most of those people would not have made it because they would have believed in the gospel. <laughs> okay, now now we go to um, the second section of church history. That that kind of give a little bit of review and kind of where we were at. I had to touch on Augustine because we can see that we get total depravity from him. We get that God chooses His people in election. We uh, get the fact that um, there's irresistible grace, right? We see perseverance. Those things were not um, taken at all. So those are great doctrines of grace that He wrote about. And this was really inside the Catholic Church at that time, but the Catholic Church wasn't at that time what we know it to be today. And so Protestants... Reformation people claim Augustine. But the Roman Catholics also claim him too. And he's one of their great theologians. So it's interesting, both sides will claim him. But I would tend to think that he is more favored on the Protestant side than he is on on the Roman Catholic side. What's that? I would have never thought that. Oh, yes. And... As a matter of fact, there was um, Martin Luther, he came along a thousand years later, who was in the Augustinian line of monks. And many were. And uh, um, we were talking about Bernard of Saint uh, Clairvaux. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux uh, was uh, in that line too. So they actually had good theology if they would stick with what that is. Even Luther being in it didn't know fully what it was until he finally learned what justification by faith alone is. Um, 
Okay, now somehow we got into that third section and we're not there yet. We, we have to cover between 500 to 1500 AD. I'm the one that brought that up to the Luther thing. Okay, after looking at that first section of history, and as we're going through, this is like a jet tour. We're, we're just getting just basic thoughts. By the way, October 31st, which is known as Halloween, uh, I think falls on a Wednesday. Um, on the time when we have Bible study. So maybe at that time, maybe we'll have a special night. I don't know whether we'll figure out whether we'll show some kind of a movie or... Yeah, we, it was on Monday and then there was leap here, so we have that. And I think uh, at one time, didn't we have another one that landed right on that? Maybe like seven years ago or something like that. I think we did a Luther video. And so we've done that a few times. So again... We we call it Reformation Day. It's actually the Sunday before that, but that'll be a Reformation Day for us to celebrate that. Okay, um, so tonight it's between 500 and 1500 A.D. We're going to cover a thousand years in about 40 minutes. We're fast. Hey, this is the information age. And this is... <laughs> That's true. She's caught this, hasn't she? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, listen, we pretty well covered last time. You know, five hundred years. Okay. The question is: Okay, you have the Roman Empire. You start getting into the Dark Ages, or we'll call the second stage the Middle Ages. And some like to divide that and call it the early Middle Ages and the later Middle Ages. The early ones being what we would know as the Dark Ages. Well, the Roman Empire did fall. And I imagine if you read deep history, you'd find a lot of reasons for it. and don't have time. There are probably books written on the fall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> there are books, a lot of books. Uh, we know as Christians that morality would definitely be one, wouldn't it? Um, now, the, the church, in um, in some senses, looked very strong number-wise, and we brought that out last week, even though it had become the official religion. And as a matter of fact, it was the only religion, finally. And, and all the other paganisms were going to be persecuted. The only bad thing about that is, is that makes everybody a Christian, no matter if they really know what that means or really care, for the most part. And so we can see that maybe sometimes the church might have been weaker, and we'll see, yes, they really became weak uh, during the Dark Ages. God used uh, persecution, and uh, in a lot of senses it was very strong for several, uh, well, hundred years. Um, but we see the weakening of it. Uh, the political leadership definitely had become weakened. And a lot of that is because some of those leaders that would have been in the political realm, the church and the state were linked together. Some of those leaders, instead of getting in the political realm, got involved in the, the church. And were the great leaders there? Strong leaders. You know, a church or a country that doesn't have strong leaders really gets into trouble, as I think we have experienced in just the short time that we have lived. But we can see that all through history. Another reason is the military, and uh, 
I think the Roman military was running out of out of men uh, for one reason, and at one time, at some times, only Christians, and there were people that didn't want to be Christians, but only Christians could be in the military. It had gotten to that point. Can you imagine that? So it, it had become, an, uh, become uh, weak, at least in numbers. Uh, another thing are the Germanic warriors that kept attacking for like 200 years. They kept hitting at the Romans and weakening down as, as time went on. Um, another thing that happened by four, the early 400s as the, the barbarians were uh, attacking that Roman Empire and it was just becoming weaker and weaker. At, in 410, the Romans were attacked by the Visigoths. And those people played uh, in uh, quite the impact because it was a catastrophic, catastrophic event. And the empire just really dropped in and, and they hit hard. The only problem is, is these are barbarian people that are coming in. So this is why we go on to point two. Why are the Middle Ages called the Dark Ages? I think it's pretty easy to uh, know why that is. Is because there was a lot of civil disorder and there was illiteracy. It ran rampant. Because if you have barbarians coming in and taking over the country, um, when you think of Christianity, you think of a long line of history of books. You think of the Scriptures first, don't you? I mean, that is what we treasure. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. I mean, this is what we are about. We're the people of the book. They also had other books. And of course, I think Augustine's writings definitely would have played heavy at least as far as the church people and other people would be reading them. Well, when this time happens, um, the the Scriptures are, are vital. The German tribes come in and they're not literate. They don't want to be literate. They don't read. They don't care about the fine arts and culture. And they're not a city type of people. They are people of uh, agrarian society. And so they don't know how to run the cities. Uh, Major urban areas is how the gospel got spread. When you look in the book of Acts, Paul went to the major cities. And wherever there was a major port, uh, and of course you can think of Ephesus or you can think of Rome or Colossae and, and uh, other cities they played roles now he didn't go to Colossae but made sure that the word of God went there and as, as he wrote to them but um, so you have a, a rural culture and the cities aren't important they start breaking down and uh, the uh, barbarians didn't know how to do anything dealing with the aqueducts those things were important, played a key role. What uh, what kind of inventions happened during the Roman Empire? A lot, right? That was one of the reasons of the demise of the Roman Empire, because they lined their aqueducts with lead. That's a good interesting point there on the other side of that. So either way you look at it. <laughs> we, we get all sides come from us. There's always a battle. Just when something is good in our uh, inventions, there's always going to be a downside to it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the funny thing is, they didn't know anything about plumbing. They didn't care about plumbing. To be honest with you, 
they did not bathe. Now this is interesting to bring this point out. He said, well, why didn't they bathe? They didn't believe in bathing. They thought it was unhealthy. Because you see, what happens when you have water? What does it do to the pores? It opens them up. And they said, see, that's bad because that allowed diseases to come into the body. So they didn't wash themselves. They didn't care about plumbing and, and water. You know, if they needed a drink, fine. You know, that's, that's what they did. They didn't wash their hands. You know, that's the kind of people that the, these barbarians were. So it leaves a power structure problem. And so who's there to pick up the ball? The Christians. Or we'll, we'll say the church. And I put this in quotes. Whenever I say Christians or the church, you know, you, you got to realize, but there are a lot of people running the church who are the intelligent people. And they are the ones who have uh, had literacy. Uh, they were able to read. Uh, so they started getting power. They, the, um, the, um, the barbarians who had come in, they needed help to run things. How are we going to collect the debts from the other countries? So they turn to the church. The church has power. Um, we said last week the absolute power corrupts. The church has political power now and it starts forcing the people into obedience and conformity. And we know the church is never into forcing people to do anything. The Holy Spirit is the one who woos us to Him and uh, he desires us to follow after him, but the church had power politically, had power in the church itself, and at the same time you had this rank illiteracy happening and also superstition. Now Rome already had the problem of superstition, and you get other people coming in, you have the barbarians and their superstition, and the Romans already believed that the body was holy in, in one sense, so Bodies could be relics, you know, and they, it's amazing what they do with bones of certain people. You probably heard of some of those stories that came not only in the Dark Ages, but still happens today. But um, relics played a real important part in the medieval period because they started building churches. Nice, they had big buildings. They, they built these great big cathedrals. A lot of these cathedrals we still have today. Uh, there, people go and visit them. They were built, but you know how they were built? Well, a lot of it was from money that was charged for people to come and to see the relics. They'd pay money for that, to see the relics. The bones, maybe from St. Peter or Paul. Yeah. The blood that came off of a piece of the wood from the cross. You know, they make all these things up. People come in, they pay for that. Of course, if they pay, of course, that's the indulgences. And uh, if you pay money for certain things, then that'll be so many years that uh, will be taken off of your purgatory time and and relatives also. So uh, that's interesting. That's what's happening during the Dark Ages. People become even more superstitious than ever before. And now they're not encouraged to read. They don't have the education. All of that has been really dampened. Uh, and so what, what had been uh, really thriving at one time, now it lost so much of that. The church, though, did preserve the culture, the society, from just deploding. 
so it raised the whole moral tone of society. The church is to be the salt and light, Matthew says, right? Matthew 5. Or people um, as a whole, are they, are they kind today? Are, are, they, are they patient? Are, are, do they have purity? Uh, are they tender? Some of those things that Christ had and of course are given in Scripture and Paul brings so forth uh, much of the, here's the fruit of the Spirit, but um, there are things that the church did. Uh, go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Very early in the church. This goes back to our first study, but this only works in the church. Acts 2.43 Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who believed were gathered together, or were, were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, I'm there now. Okay. <laughs> you got there. Oneness, though, isn't it? Unity. Unity that that the church had, and and there they are. They're they're sharing and and uh, doing things uh, that are building each other up. Um, stability was definitely there, and so the church somewhat did that, even as the the culture had just depleted itself, and they were giving to strangers. And I was bringing out last week, you know, the church. Think about all the hospitals that have been brought forth because of it, relief of human needs and orphanages and those things, especially after the Reformation. A lot of those things really came into play too. So, you know, they preserved civilization and kept it from going into utter chaos. And uh, so there was a classic culture that was involved in preserving that and uh, some kind of unity. And the church was a depository of wealth at that time, what money they had. They became a guardian of that and of the poor. So they were the socialistic society of the day. And if we do it the way that Christ works, that kind of socialism is the way it's supposed to be. Not the socialism of mankind, uh, coming up with his own idea, but operating in, in the, the principles of supplying people whatever their needs are. And they also kept the majesty of the Roman law. They kept that going in some sense. So the, the church in this great crisis during the Dark Ages is kind of an inheritor of civilization. The barbarians are not civilized. They don't even wash their hands. They've got problems, right? Well, what the church then did as this Dark Ages kept moving on forward, you can think of the British Isles. The church went there, spread it. Uh, whenever I say gospel, sometimes I say that a little loosely, but sometimes the gospel was preached by certain people in um, pretty well uh, the way that it should have. 
And uh, you can think of Celtic England. Well, uh, 3rd and 4th centuries, traders came in, um, maybe bringing the gospel in. There were also soldiers from garrisons. And you remember, many of those were Christians. So they probably brought in the gospel there. And so what happened though, Roman power kept declining. The garrisons then left because the military became smaller. So they couldn't extend out there. And back came the pagans and the Anglo-Saxon invaders came in and there went uh, civilization for a while. You have the Welsh. You have Ireland. Just a moment. Uh, Ireland, you think of who? Patrick. Patrick, I I think you probably all know, even though he's called St. Patrick and the Roman Catholic Church, Church really likes to claim him. Uh, the thing is, he established monasteries, and when you say monasteries, you're going, oh, monks, and that sounds like uh, a little bit of legalism and such going in. Not necessarily at that time. It was learning centers. That's what they were. Remember, the education is really almost nil, and it was for evangelization. And that's what the ideal was. A guy preached the Word of God, and people... Um, kept the learning alive there in Western Europe. Matter of fact, where it was there in Ireland was probably more in the education field and, of course, the gospel than in any other place in, in Europe uh, for a while. There, And Patrick had everything to do with that. And he taught confession and absolution. And you say, oh, that sounds real Catholic. It, it later evolved into what we know of it as today. But then... What it was, was people needed to repent of their sins and confess it to Jesus Christ. And their sins are absolved by Him, especially when they first come to Him. And that's where we get forgiveness. Well, that was a biblical teaching. Later it became known as you have to go in and confess to your priest who would absolve you of your sins. How do you get your sins forgiven? Good question to ask people. How do you get your sins forgiven? Oh, the priest forgives me. No, it's God alone who forgives us. That's what our Scripture says, right? So that's what he did. Um, Germany, you think of England, then you had Germany, there was a guy by the name of Boniface. Don't hear too much about him, but he had a lot to do with preaching the Gospel, had an opportunity. There were superstitions there in Germany. And they had the old religion and they had the new religion, just combined them together. That's why we have such a mixture today of, like even the holidays, we know that where a lot of those came from. Um, they came from paganism. Not to say it's necessarily wrong to celebrate Christmas or uh, Easter and you know by using those terms. Uh, we can turn them around and turn them for the glory of God. Um, but during that time, they didn't want to say goodbye to their old ways. And uh, so those were sacred, and they just took Christianity and just kind of uh, put them together. But uh, what Boniface did was he they would bow to trees, worship trees, and there was one great big old ancient uh, oak tree, I believe it was. And he went... And he had the audacity to go and get some people and cut that tree down. This could have caused a major war in Germany. Well, uh, as a result of that, that big step 
was really about the abolishing of their idolatry that they had and the, the paganism, their ancient gods. And the gospel then started spreading all over Germany. Of course, we know when we think of Germany today, we think it's a very Catholic nation or then later to become a lot of Lutherans also. But it eventually came under the influence of the cross. And, of course, I put a lot of quotes there, but some of these guys were preaching the gospel. He was killed for it. And he said this as they killed him, Be not afraid of those who can only kill the body, but put all your trust in God, who will speedily give you an eternal reward and an entrance into His heavenly kingdom. Do not fear men, right? Um, I'm going to say Boniface. Okay. I've never heard that word pronounced. I've just heard Boniface. Boniface, okay. Yeah, that's a good quote though. Yeah, and it sounded like he, definitely there that would be true I don't know how much he really preached the gospel but these are some of the things that are happening he had a lot to do with the gospel going into France but what happened at that time what happened later missionaries from Germany they were the ones that um, went on into the Scandinavian countries presented some of that uh, the, the Norsemen all the terrors the people had from them there was kind of relief from that then, and uh, he was responsible for uh, having missionaries go into Poland and Hungary. Of course, again, you know those are very heavily populated Roman Catholic countries today. Bulgaria, Moravia, uh, Russia, and when you think of Russia, you think of Eastern Orthodox. And of course, remember, the East and the West, they're basically all united as one at this time. We'll get into that in a moment because now we have where the church starts to divide. One church, you have an Eastern side, a Western side. You have Rome, you have Constantinople. When Constantine moved it to Constantinople, which is Turkey and the East, then really it had the upper hand. Rome was still kind of underneath all this. So the East and the West are one, but the East would be considered to be the one that would be in a little bit of a more controlling situation for a while until later. Um, they started dividing. They at one time had basically one language. Uh, the language then goes, you have the Eastern scholars, they continue to write in Greek, and you have the Western scholars, and now they're doing it in Latin, and uh, that presents a problem. As they're divided, you have the bishops of Rome, then they're claiming that we are the ones. They wanted the clout and the power, so they take, they say it. It took a while for things to come into place, but they said uh, it's in Rome, and, and uh, this is where the power comes from. There was a problem in culture. Then the venerating of pictures. Is it going to have pictures and images of Christ, or is it going to have images of the saints? So the division over that, the Eastern Orthodox is known and known for their images. You'll see images of Christ and different kinds of pictures of of that uh, that they would do. But um, of course, the Roman Church or the Western Church would venerate the saints. And they'd have all the pictures of them and such. The one of the biggest things was called the philoque, uh, which was a phrase that came from the Nicene Creed and and it's still in the Creed today that the Son proceeded from the Father. They always agreed on that. The church did. But then what the Roman side did then was add one more. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. 
And if you remember that Nicene Creed, that uh, that is still there today. Well, that was in 1054. That's where they split right there. And especially when you have the popes of Rome saying, we're controlling this thing. And now the church, which was basically one, and you see the dangers of having one church too. I mean, people say, well, why, you know, why are there so many denominations? If, if there's just one, then, it's, then that's, that's good, right? Well, that is a perfect world. We live in a sinful world. Sinful man who doesn't have complete understanding of the Word of God is going to get different interpretations and therefore you have all sorts of different uh, divisions and schisms as the years go on. And the longer we're here, as long as the church is here uh, in the world before Christ comes back, we'll probably have more denominations and isms and schisms. Anyway, they officially went their own ways. Now, we're still in the Dark Ages, right? What is the biggest fear today as far as religion goes? What's the biggest growing religion in the world? The Mohammedans. And of course, Mohammed comes along about this time. And um, Mohammed has visions. And this is about 613 A.D. And this is where the Muslim world took off. And it happened quick. Um, he, of course, responsible for the Quran, and uh, he wrote this, Let them fight for the religion of God. For whosoever fights for the religion of God, whether he be slain or be victorious, we will surely give him a great reward. We'll go in. And, and so he later, and it wasn't very long, took the view that we'll go in and if they don't want us, then and if they don't pay tribute to us, you know, we're going to go in and we're going to take it. And if they don't pay tribute to us and they don't become like us, it's the sword. And that's the way that they've always done since the 600s. That's the way they always... Just history. <laughs> you don't have to look at Christian history. Just look at history, how they've always done. But yet, in our country today, we've had presidents, conservative, not conservative, say that they are a peaceful religion. How can we believe that? You know, they never have been. They're not today, and they never have been from their history. They took over Arabia. This is like within two years, took over Arabia, then like another three years, they took Damascus, then into Jerusalem, then into Antioch, then down into uh, you know the Africa, northern Africa, uh, Alexandria. Uh, that was a major area for Christianity. Alexandria, that's where Augustine came from. Or, you know, you think of northern Africa anyway. Uh, Spain. Within a century, they had taken Spain. They'd taken all of these. Many of the Christian territories now are losing because the Mohammedans are taking over. They had made great gains going and taking um, the, the church. It was was advancing in England, all over uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe, all the way into Russia, and just multiplying. And all of a sudden, you have the Mohammedans coming along. And at first, they would permit liberty. Then they would take their liberty away from them. And then Christianity 
would become a minority. And it's a minority today. It's illegal in almost all of the uh, Muslim countries that I know of or close to it. Anyway, that's why the Crusades, one of the reasons why the Crusades came along, you had like at least four of them to cover a couple of hundred years. You probably know some of the history of that. Some gains, some losses, a lot of bad things happened out of it, uh, some, some good things, but um, the division uh, between the Christians and the uh, Mohammedans and the Orthodox and Catholics really had been deepened and the East and the West, and the much of the East now was all taken over by the Mohammedans during the Dark Ages. Can you see why they call it the Dark Ages, especially with this going along? So you have the Western part now really with the culture, and it, it was trying to have that power, and the, the East did have it. Now it looks like the West, the Romans, will take over uh, and to have that control and keep the Mohammedans from coming in. The popes had power. You had the Byzantine Empire. Constantine was the original emperor of of this in in uh, what the third century. Anyway, the bishop of uh, fourth century. He was a subject of the empire. The bishop was. The church was. But it wasn't too long. Now, not only was it the subject, but it had become independent of the state, which is. Sounds pretty good. Um, the pontiffs had a royal power. And so they actually would crown the king. And so really the king was in some, at some times was underneath whatever the popes would be. So you had the papacy and uh, the Franks. You had the, uh, then you had Charlemagne who was a political leader. Uh, but he started making inroads and uh, he was made himself a successor of Caesar. And so we go back to that kind of power again. Um, so the church, the state, power, civilization, the Pope has power, the Pope and the rest of the church starts taking advantage of the power and they become involved in all sorts of escapades and they turn the church of St. Peter into a den of robbers and a harem. Most popes were worse than the worst emperors. And some of the things that they do are incredible. And all of this is happening around the 900s, the 1000s and it spread the Saxon dynasty in Germany and then in France and then the Italian Renaissance. And the theology is really developing now. Of course, we see politically their clout, their power. Mohammedanism taken over the eastern part. Um, haven't really been able to make a lot of inroads into the west at that time. Theology is happening. Now, this is where we start getting out of the dark ages. Remember the church kept the culture going? At least there was a little bit of light still there. All of a sudden it starts getting a little more light again. Education, universities are starting to be built. Um, more books. People are able to read. They get people that are going to school. Um, and then you get, during the, the Middle Ages, what is called scholasticism. Sounds like a good thing. Scholastics, scholasticism, some great thinkers. One was Anselm. 
He would have been known as the first um, scholastic Thomas Aquinas. Catholic Church claims him. R.C. Sproul would rather claim him as one of the greatest theologians ever. Matter of fact, he calls him um, uh, a great philosopher and a great theologian. Now, some in the Reformed theology don't go along with R.C. I see some points that R.C. has, though. I think he borrowed a lot from, from Aquinas. And I think that Aquinas borrowed a lot from Augustine. And then when Calvin uh, picked up Augustine, he got a lot of his information there, but he also got it from Bernard and uh, also some ideas from Aquinas. Now, two schools of thought going on in Roman theology as they're getting their theology. Not everything was right with Aquinas, but there were a lot of things that he did have right. Um, One of them was the authority uh, as far as the approach to God. How about the approach to God? What, you know, as far as approaching authority, uh, who can do that? And what the Roman Church was starting to develop is that you can't go straight to God. You have to go to the saints and all the pictures. And even Mary, Mary's even better. You know, so you go to Mary, you go to the saints. They believed in the intercession of the saints. Whenever I worked at the store, I, it was so sad. How many people would come in and want a saint book or statues of particular saints? And the one that sold the most was the one to sell their house. You know all about that, don't you? That's right. That's right. Buried upside down, and you sell your. And they say, "I've heard this, and it works every time." That's what they always said. Now, I didn't have any facts to really find that out. because uh, My neighbor did that. A lot of these people weren't even Catholics. <laughs> but some were. Many of them were. But uh, there you go. There's that superstition thing again, though. It's, it's uh, deeply ingrained into them. Uh, Anselm believed that reason could establish independently all the great doctrines of the church, and this was the task of theology. And he supplied arguments for the existence of God. And that's not so bad. And the fact of the incarnation. So they're developing some theology that is biblical. And uh, Anselm is one to take note of. Um, Aquinas, he's saying that while some truths could be established by reason, the existence of God, for instance, there were others which come to us only through revelation. These, however, can be shown to be reasonable. So he's saying not everything is uh, going to be established by reason, we, but uh, there's going to be some that just through revelation, through, through Scripture. Scotus is the other guy that would seem to challenge Aquinas during that time. And he goes along with what we know as straight-out Roman Catholicism of our time. He doubted that all Christian truth could be established as reasonable. And so you have to fall back on the authority of the church as the basis for belief. It's the church. Yeah, that's Scotus. Yes. They believe that God could be more readily approached through the intercession of saints. Aquinas denied that Mary was born without sin. He denied that, you know, that, you know, he said that, no, she, she had sin. That's Thomas Aquinas. But Scotus said the opposite. She had no sin. What's that make her? 
And in, as that later developed, we see that later that becomes official Catholic dogma that uh, she has no sin. Um, Aquinas took Augustine's view of totally depraved. A lot of good things about Thomas Aquinas. Quite an admiration. We're saying we're, we're seeing some things trying to develop, and uh, but it's going against us. Scotus taught that Adam's sin, uh, after Adam's sin, the natural gifts remain unimpaired, so they didn't get affected. Total depravity says everything gets affected. So they didn't believe in the fall. They, the, the Roman Catholic Church will believe in the original sin. But what we're saying here, and what he's going to develop is, man can do good works and merit rewards. And that would be Roman Catholic dogma of our day. The guilt of Adam was not imputed, only the consequence? Yes. And that would be their original sin definition today. And I think Aquinas would differ from that. I know he would, because he believed in the doctrine of total depravity. That is a key doctrine. Uh, and I, I think uh, Aquinas was right on there. Of course, huh? Well, we, we just explained that uh, earlier, but, uh, what Augustine believed there, that uh, man is sinful and he cannot choose God. Uh, because of his sin, he's, in a, uh, he's dead spiritually. So um, that's that's a major point there, and it uh, evidently Thomas Aquinas, who they adore so much, they didn't take his major doctrine doctrinal beliefs on major points. I think that is one of the biggest points that people have to understand is how sinful they really are. I don't think people really know how sinful they are before a holy God, and so that point just. Uh, just got blown by, uh, even as powerful as Aquinas was. Baptism, they said, wiped out original sin. And, of course, that's where you get into some of your other things. First communion, your confessions and such. Uh, Purgatory was developed with that. Right. Right. That's That's the only way you're going to get rid of that original sin. Purgatory was for final punishment, cleansing, and then you get passed into heaven. So that was developed during this time. Confession was to be followed by a priest absolution. That is what's being going on in the theology that's developed now near the the latter stages of the Dark Ages. They're coming out of the Dark Ages and they're developing this. Uh, money was raised for the sale of indulgences. We talked about that. Communion, transubstantiation. This is the whole point of Roman Catholic theology. This is where everything revolves around. Uh, this is where it is all at. Uh, the reason, real reason that people go to church is to receive communion. And it was to enable the worshiper the ability to avoid sin. What happened at the cross? It totally takes away what Christ did at His sacrifice and they're trying to aid that. He says, yeah, He did that, but what this will do is we'll make it continue to go on. Now, in Hebrews, it's once 
for all. Exactly. Once for all. He's saying that to Jews. The Jewish religion, the Judaism that they had was very similar to what Roman Catholic theology is in its works basis. Righteousness. So, uh, that that would cut down the time of purgatory. And that was the central focus. It wasn't the Word of God being preached because they didn't understand... Well, today, until the 1950s, people didn't understand what they were saying unless they took Latin. All the Masses, every Mass everywhere, was always said in Latin. Facing away from the congregation. Facing away from the congregation. And for... uh, you know, and so the people were not involved in really what the worship was about until they would take that communion. But they couldn't take; they can't take the 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 wine, the fruit of the vine. Only the priests can do that. But now you have an opportunity for that. You can choose it. But until what? The last few decades. We have quite a few ex-Catholics here, so I imagine you guys are having a field day with this, I know. What's that? Oh, is that right? Really? That's incredible. I didn't know that. Came that close, huh? <laughs> Aren't you thankful for that? <laughs> By the way, we we had your dad was at our Bible study one time uh, a year ago or so uh, at at the store. So, yeah, he's he's a neat guy. As long as you go to it and, and confess it. That's one thing that was really shocking to me when I first started going to the church I go to now. And one of the things that was always strikingly absent on the rare occasion I go to a different church other than Catholic church is the lack of decorum. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the procession, the solid procession up each time. And now our pastor's sitting up there at the front singing with everybody else, and then he just walks up there and starts talking, and it's like, can you do that? Recessional, I know a lot of people are are used to that, and that's why it's really hard to accept just the preaching of the word and uh, the singing and and the prayers, and and everybody's involved in worshiping. It's not just a one man thing, you know. So, like the four weeks of Advent. Catholics really just do that up. 
And there can be some good things out of that. Out of those traditions, it can be exciting. And, and uh, I think some of those traditions can, can be practiced today by the church. And, it, and it's just fine if it's done in the right way. Uh, you know, not to, you know, to glorify those things, right. but to help us you know, in, in, in worship, to, to aid to that in that sense. But what's that? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, just to finish this up, um, we're at the last one there. There were movements stirring in the church, and officially the name of this is called the Reformers Before the Reformation. Now, I've called them on my own because I didn't know there was a name. I called them the Pre-Reformers. Before the Reformation happened, here's what was going on. And I can say this real quick. A lot of these guys we've covered, and, and so I won't spend much time on it. There was monasticism going on. Uh, that's not all so bad. Uh, I have to be really careful when I say that. Uh, whenever I hear monasticism and mysticism, I think of monkeries and, and all of the different things that they did. And, of course, Luther was you know, a part of that by the time it came to his time. You know, he did all the penances and everything that was involved in that. But there was a Francis of Assisi. We've heard about him. There, there are some favorable things that, that he wrote that uh, lended to people being edified. There were people that were had a heart for God. A, a, they had uh, a spirit about them where they wanted to, to know more of Christ. And so that's I was talking to uh, to Zach here about uh, the mysticism back at that time. And boy, when you get into mysticism, you have to be really careful. I hear that word and I really cringe. But there was a guy by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. And Zach had just finished reading him, I think, last week, right? Um, and he's a good guy. And he wrote a lot of really good hymns. His thought was really to bring forth uh, a growth in Christ. And so therefore it was his, his own personal relationship with Christ, which a works-based righteousness doesn't present Christ that way. So a lot of favorable things in that kind of mysticism. You still have to be careful, but at the same time, I think there's pro- it was probably defined a little bit different with certain individuals like that because they wanted to have freedom in Christ. And so there was Thomas Akempis, the imitation of Christ. Legalism can set in there, but there were some things there that uh, was interesting because what what happened is criticism started coming about and then dissent. And there was one group called the Cathari. You don't hear much about them because they didn't last long. They put those guys out. But you've heard about the Waldensians. And a year ago, I think we did the Waldensians. And quite a group of people that Waldo refused to obey all of the Roman dogma, the rituals and the sacraments and the images in purgatory, and they set up their own church and had a, a democratic rule rather than the Pope. And um, they spread out Switzerland, Germany, and Moravia. And that's where a lot of them came from Moravia to the United States. Um, they had some really villages had been developed. They got destroyed by the Roman church. Uh, all the vineyards were destroyed. They killed men, women, children, the elderly come in and just wipe them out. That was under orders of the church. They were just decimated. But there were still people 
that survived out of that. The Moravians still exist today. Small, small group of them. There was John Wycliffe, John Huss. John, you think of uh, Wycliffe, he's the English guy. He's the one that put it into English. We can say he's a reason why we have our English Bibles and we can read them here because before it was only in Latin and only if you spoke Latin could you read the Bible. And they got so mad at him that they made it illegal for anybody to read the Bible in English. The Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And uh, they didn't kill him, but his writings were ordered to be burned. And anybody that would be caught reading, they would forfeit their land, their estate, uh, anything that they owned, their cattle, their goods, their lives. <laughs> um, yeah, they were called heretics. Uh, his writings were ordered to be burned. His bones were dug up. They were cast out of the consecrated ground. The, bo- burns, uh, the bones were then burnt, put to ashes, and then thrown into the river Swift to the damnation and destruction of his memory. <laughs> and his vile corpse they consigned to hell and the river absorbed his ashes. Wycliffe had a follower later a guy by the name of Hus, Jan Hus. Czechoslovakia, you think of. Um, Anyway, he was a reformer before the Reformation. He was excommunicated for spreading Wycliffe's heresy, his doctrines, which are the same doctrines that we have today, and reformed theology. This is incredible. This is before the reformers. They were reformers. Um, He was ordered to recant, and he refused, so they burnt him at the stake. That was Huss. And before he died, he said this, In the truth which I have proclaimed according to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the expositions of holy teachers, I will this day joyfully die. And he did. Savonarola, you don't think of the Italian reformers, but Savonarola was a preacher of righteousness. He called people to righteousness. Uh, and he called them into account for their corrupt lifestyles and the ways they lived. And as, as, as you said earlier, uh, hey, I can live any way I want. I can do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and that's what they were doing. And uh, this was in Florence. And he called the Pope to account. Mm-mm. He was hanged. He was mutilated. He was burned. And anyone who opposed the ecclesiastical system, same thing happened to them. Humanist, what's that? Yeah, the the church has done some very ugly things. I say the church, and I put quotes there because that is not the church, even though it was under the guise of that. The church were these people who were searching out the scriptures and wanting, or some people didn't get the scriptures. But somehow they had their belief in Christ. And even a guy by the name of Erasmus sets us up for the next guy. Erasmus ridiculed the superstitious beliefs of the church. He didn't want to become a martyr, so he didn't openly attack. He was quite the scholastic himself, uh, but he did intimidate them with irony and uh, wisdom. And he wrote editions of the early church fathers with notes and made that explainable for the people. And um, what he did do, the biggest thing that he did, even though Luther will debate him on uh, free will, and Luther will tear him up, bondage of the will. But here's what he did. He translated 
the Latin Vulgate into the Greek to get the accuracy. He, I mean, he didn't translate the Latin into Greek, but he got he went, instead of translating from the uh, the Latin from the Greek, he went and got the Greek and put those texts together as much as he could of the New Testament. And so, therefore, he did have a lot to do with it. Erasmus, um, some said he laid the egg that Luther hatched. Erasmus replied, "Yes, but I laid a hen's egg. Luther hatched a gamecock." So, anyway, um, faith in Christ is how man is justified. And it was time for a revival. It was time, it was ripe for a reformation, and it's going to catch fire. And that's where we have gotten to on our little church history venture. Um,